Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Girl Podcast. I am your host, Kristen. You know, there haven't been many times in the course of this show that I've discovered something that I wish I hadn't. Never did I think one of those times would have anything to do with ectoplasm. You all already know I headed into this season a bit more skeptical on the physical medium. I'm going to tell you right off the bat here at the start of the show, though I only had a basic understanding before. Now, having dug into some of the material, my initial skepticism so far is well-founded. Second real opinion this season, mediums who claim they can materialize a substance called ectoplasm, hogwash. It's baloney, y'all. It was an illuminating lesson for myself, though, going through it. The phenomenon of ectoplasm is truly a shining example, whether we are speaking of the paranormal or not, of the extent that someone is willing to believe in something because they want to believe it is real. But there's truly no question for me on this one. We'll get into it and you'll see what I mean. Let's start with ectoplasm itself. Ectoplasm is a term coined by physiologist Charles Roche. It is the physical materialization of spiritual energy that extrudes from a medium during a seance. Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a massive proponent of both ectoplasm and physical mediums, described it as a milky white substance that varied in description of snake-like, web-like, sticky, airy, smoky, doughy, moist, dry, cold, and warm. And it could morph in its makeup and description throughout the ectoplasmic process, beginning as a vapor or solidifying into a plastic substance. He also said something that I will be touching upon a little bit later and is firmly one of the main issues about it that supports my staunch skepticism about this stuff. Quote, ectoplasm is sensitive to light and any flash of light might drive the structure back into the medium with the force of a snapped elastic band. I have also read that it can even be dangerous or life-threatening to the medium as it can snap back with sharp and violent force, putting the medium's life at risk. Seems thankless of the spirit that the poor medium was gracious enough to allow to materialize out of their own bodies, don't you think? But this concept of light being such an antagonist to ectoplasm, that these ectoplasmic sessions and seances must be held in the dark... Where does that information come from? Oh, the physical mediums themselves? You don't say. 
A couple of weeks ago, I put some pictures up on Twitter of Helen Duncan materializing ectoplasm that forms into figures standing beside her. This post got a pretty decent reaction. I was kind of surprised. Y'all are funny, by the way. Anywho, to put it bluntly, these photos snapped by a photographer that Duncan, for some reason, allowed to take during these seances she would hold in her home are absurd, absolutely ridiculous. These grotesque-looking figures are clearly made up of papier-mâché masks and what appears to be a sheet or muslin propped up on hangers. I can't help but laugh at the ectoplasm running from her mouth in one photo and from her eyes coming out from under her blindfold in the other. It's just a, a piece of like white fabric with its end attached to the figures in question. And this is the kind of picture that just makes you question, you know, like just how gullible were people, right? I mean, I, I don't want to be mean, but a lot of your comments kind of support this collective agreement that Anyone who could look at a setup like this and believe it to be real is an idiot. <laughs> but there are a few things we should keep in mind when those of us in the present day look back on these sorts of events. Number one, like I said, seances are held in the dark. The picture looks all lit up, but I imagine the camera had a flash, yes? Or they were taken in the dark and lightened up later. I, I just don't think Duncan meant for folks to be able to clearly see these things. Like, they're that obvious. Another thing to keep in mind, these photos were taken in 1928. While ectoplasmic events had already been occurring... It wasn't until 1894 that the term ectoplasm would be coined and thus brought to the forefront of the public's imagination and wonderment. So I think it's fair to say that even by 1928, only 30 years later, this phenomenon was still incredibly new and mysterious to members of the public. We can be a lot more forgiving on evidence of something that we don't understand. Pair this with the popularity of the physical medium and seance world at the time, the willingness of the public to believe it to be, albeit strange and otherworldly, conceivably real. And all the public had to go on were published photos and attendee stories. People sitting in a darkened room somewhere, not clearly seeing, but hearing spooky voices of the spirit, feeling them touching them in the dark, hearing footsteps, and then... Seeing something across the room, white and almost luminescent, extruding from a medium's orifice. The whole experience would be undeniable to them. And don't discount the fact that historically, people were more superstitious in the past and willing to believe the unbelievable. Ever see a picture of Barnum's mermaid? Someone commented on that post basically that there is no way that someone could believe that those figures were real, that people were happy to pay to be duped. Perhaps. Um, I just think it's possible that folks were genuinely being tricked while also at the same time having a willingness to believe the trickery to be genuine. You know, it takes two to tango. This isn't just a thing of the past either. <laughs> Human beings are wired to want to believe, especially when it benefits us somehow or our empathy is roped into it. I've got a Nigerian prince who can attest to this. Other things we should know about ectoplasm before moving on. The medium must be in a trance state when this phenomenon takes place. 
It is said that once this substance is exteriorized, it drapes over the non-physical body of the spirit in order for them to interact with the physical world. In some cases, a distinct, strong odor can accompany the ectoplasm. Curious if that distinct odor smells like vomit. Ahem. Unlike many other paranormal phenomena, ectoplasm has been studied scientifically in labs and stuff. So far, not one sample has been studied that was not comprised of a very non-paranormal material substance. Scientifically speaking, they have been able to duplicate the ectoplasm itself and also the photographic evidence of said substance. At the time of ectoplasm's day in the sun, it was speculated that an unidentified fluid existed within the human body that they termed the psychode, psychic force, or actinic force, and could be released to influence matter. Later, psychical researcher Hereward Carrington pointed out that the fluid hadn't actually been discovered and was only hypothetical. So, that is ectoplasm. How about we explore some ectoplasmic stories and main characters of the time period, though, yes? If you're excited, you're about to not be. <laughs> Don't want to get your hopes up, because it gets weird. Um, gonna kick it off with one of the weirdest, Eva Carriere. I, I am not pronouncing that right. I know that. Um, I will refer to her mostly as Eva C. That's what she was known for. She was also known as the queen of ectoplasm. There is no easy way to get through this next part. I'm, I'm going to do my best, but for any of you good folks who might be uncomfortable hearing about the female uh, anatomy, skip ahead like 25 minutes. Yeah, you're, you're going to miss like most of the show, but sorry. Uh, for the rest of you, buckle in. Eva was a materialization medium in the early 20th century who claimed she developed psychic powers after her fiancé died in 1904 and when she still went by her birth name, Martha Barad. In the following year, she would begin holding seances where she claimed to be able to materialize a 300-year-old Brahmin Hindu spirit called Ben Boa. It would later be exposed as a hoax and she exposed as a fraud. Photos taken of Ben Boa show a figure dressed in a cloak, helmet, and sporting a beard, and is quite obviously a cardboard cutout. Later, a man who worked at the villa in which Eva C. lived and conducted these communications would go on to admit that he himself, at times, would play the part of Ben Boa, dressing the part and entering the darkened seance room via a trap door. By 1909, unable to outrun her fraudulent past, Barad would discontinue use of her birth name, adopting instead the pseudonym Eva Carriere. Carrere. Unfortunately, once a grifter, always a grifter. Eva would be investigated and found out numerous times up through the time of her death in 1943. Though, don't get it twisted, she did have her supporters and true believers. I wish I could say it's because she was just that convincing in her trickery, but alas, the truth may just be, men sometimes be creeping. Eva, and for lack of better words, her act, has been described as perverse and neurotic. She became very well known for running around prior to her seances completely naked and indulging in certain sexual activities with her audience. 
prior to the seance's beginning, she would invite her assistant, Juliette Besson, to perform a thorough gynecological exam in full view of investigators attending so as to dissuade any doubt that the impending ectoplasmic expulsions from various orifices were anything but genuine. Nothing hidden in my pockets here, doctor. Psychical researcher Albert von Schrenk-Notzing, another of Eva C.'s investigators, was a staunch supporter, and after many attendances and a course of thorough study on the medium, would write that he believed the ectoplasm she produced to be real. The psychic sessions Eva conducted with Schrenk-Notzing have been described as downright pornographic. There were photos taken during the seances showing Eva emerging completely nude from her cabinet and others of strings of ectoplasm hanging from her nips. And yet another photo showing what appears to be ectoplasm in the shape of a flaccid, disembodied peen. Um, Historian Ruth Brandon claimed that Eva was in a sexual relationship with her assistant, Miss Besson, and they worked diligently together to both fake the ectoplasm and eroticize these events for the viewing pleasure of their male audience. Photographs were discovered after the death of another psychical researcher investigating Eva, Gustav Gallet, showing fraudulent activity from Besson during the seance, such as wires running from Eva's head, presumably controlled by Besson, supporting the fake ectoplasm. Besson and Schrenk Notzing would work together to perform very thorough and titillating examinations of Eva's body and excretions. They would take turns performing their examinations prior to sessions looking for any evidence of stowed materials. And on more than one occasion, even after Besson had thoroughly examined her, Eva would invite Shrink Notzing to conduct a consecutive second examination. You know, for science. In letters between Shrink Notzing and Besson, she would write him descriptions of sessions that can only be described as ectoplasmic erotica. On my expressing a wish, the medium parted her thighs, and I saw that material assumed a curious shape resembling an orchid, decrease slowly, and entered the vagina. During the whole process, I held her hands. Eva then said, wait, we will try to facilitate the passage. She rose, mounted on the chair, and sat down on one of the armrests, her feet touching the seat. Before my eyes, and with the curtain open, a large spherical mass, about eight inches in diameter, emerged from the vagina and quickly placed itself on her left thigh while she crossed her legs. I distinctly recognized in the mass a still, unfinished face whose eyes looked at me. Moving on, in another letter, she wrote, Yesterday, I hypnotized Eva as usual, and she unexpectedly began to produce phenomena. As soon as they began, Eva allowed me to undress her completely. I then saw a thick thread emerge from the vagina. It changed its place, left the genitals, and disappeared in the navel depression. More material emerged, and with a sinuous, serpentine motion of its own, it crept up the girl's body, giving the impression as if it were about to rise in the air. Finally, it ascended to her head, entered Eva's mouth, and disappeared. Eva then stood up, and again, a mass of material appeared at the genitals, spread out, and hung suspended between her legs. A strip of it rose, took a direction towards me, receded, and disappeared. 
Houdini would be a champion for the duped during these times and had some harsh words about his many investigations of fraudulent mediums, but he seemed to have a rather obvious distaste for Eva C.'s sexy shenanigans. After observing one of her seances, he asserted that both her and Basson were frauds and likened Eva's performance to a magician's trick and that her demonstrations of ectoplasm were accomplished by regurgitation. He doubted her honesty and would go on to say that both women took advantage of the credulity and good nature of the various men with whom they had to deal. In short, they were lying seductresses preying on their poor male victims. Suffice it to say, he remained entirely unconvinced. Though not to the erotic extent that Eva C. would become known, Mina Crandon was another well-known materialism medium at the time, alleged to have used sexual behavior and producing vaginal ectoplasm during her presentations as well. Crandon performed many of her seances nude and reportedly would throw herself onto the laps of men in attendance. And her husband was known for displaying nude photographs of her taken during her sessions. Mina would become known as the Witch of Lime Street, and unsurprisingly, Houdini had it out for her too. But a lot of other men would take their shot. Some accused her of hiding fake ectoplasmic hands in her underparts. Her husband, Dr. Leroy Goddard Crandon, was accused of surgically expanding her vagina in order to do so. Houdini claimed she was in bed with other investigators, winning their silence. She would be investigated by members of the American Society for Psychical Research, as well as employees of the Scientific American. That one is understandable, though, as she had been submitted to win a prize being offered by Scientific American for any medium who could demonstrate telekinetic powers under scientific controls. But maybe the most dramatic part about Mina was the love triangulatory soap opera purported to be taking place all throughout her investigations, leading those on one side to perhaps give her abilities too much credit, and those on the other suspecting that evidence of her trickery was being withheld by either her lovers or those who wished to be one. Mina was described as a beautiful woman who men found, quote, too attractive for her own good. It was thought that one psychical investigator, J. Malcolm Byrd, had wanted to have a sexual relationship with Mina, so much so that it was thought he actually conspired with the Crandons in their ectoplasmic escapades. But apparently Mina had the hots for another psychical investigator, inter Hereward Carrington. Carrington would borrow money from Mina, a debt he could not afford, and it's thought by critics of the Crandons that this would certainly bias him toward reporting Mina to be genuine. And yet another investigator, Eric Dingwall, would enter the ring as a possible biased and amorous player. According to her Wikipedia page, during seance sessions, Dingwall would tell Mina to strip and then she would sprinkle luminous powder on her breasts and sit in the nude, in the dark for him, with her twinkly twinklies. Historian Ruth Brandon would claim that all three men had physical relationships with Mina, but it's a little unclear if it was actually to that full extent for all but Carrington. Despite the men and investigators who carried on with Mina in this fashion, or for whatever reason helped her pretend the phenomena she claimed to be able to produce, a ton of investigators at the time would call BS, including Houdini, 
Walter Franklin Prince, head of the Boston Society for Psychical Research, William McDougall, magician Fred Keating, an entire committee of Harvard scholars, and the father of modern parapsychology, Joseph Banks Rhine and many others would look beyond her pretty exterior and her obvious ruse and tell the truth, ultimately cementing her reputation then and now as fraudulent. Other notable ectoplasm producers were Helen Duncan, the Fox sisters, who are getting their very own episode, so stay tuned, the Davenport brothers, Einar Nielsen, and Ada Bessonet. But so many others of the day claim they too could extradate the physical manifestation of spiritual energy from their bodies. But not one was ever found to perform this feat when properly investigated and under scientific scrutiny. Now, while a majority of materialization mediums throughout history have been primarily female, which is interesting in itself for the possible reasons why, I came across one male medium of a special interest, though it seems reasonable to assume that physical mediumship, at least within the scope of ectoplasmic production, is a thing of the past, firmly put to bed by the countless catchings of red hands in the act of forging the phenomena in complete darkness. But alas, dear listeners, it is alive and well today with one David Thompson. The following information is from the website simply titled victorjzamet.com, who presumably is the lawyer in this online excerpt from a book entitled A Lawyer Presents a Case for the Afterlife, and the excerpt itself is titled Clarifications About David Thompson's Mediumship. David's section starts out thus. A number of people occasionally make genuine inquiries about David Thompson's physical and materialization mediumship. Many people know that David Thompson risks his life whenever he does materialization mediumship. This is because if sudden light were to come into the experimenting room, the ectoplasm would be forcibly pulled back into David's body where it came from and could kill him. This excerpt goes through a series of question and answer type entries, which we'll run through a few of them quickly. Why does David have to be gagged and tied to his chair for a seance? Simple. It eliminates the possibility in people's minds that fraud is taking place. If he is clearly gagged and tied, then he is unable to produce the clear voices heard throughout the sittings. He is clearly strapped with buckles and plastic cables that can only be removed by cutters, which are securely placed in the hands of a guest for the duration of the seance. Two independent checkers are free to search and check the room, furniture, and medium prior to the session beginning to make sure there's no trickery about to take place. No extra people hiding anywhere. Reminds me an awful lot of magician performances I've attended. At the end of the seance, those checkers are asked to re-examine David's restraints to make sure they are as they were at the beginning and haven't been tampered with seems to me that in the dark, buckles could be unbuckled and a nondescript zip tie could be cut off and then reapplied fairly easily, yeah? A second reason those ties are all in place are to prevent David from moving while in trance. This is so spirit will be encouraged to utilize David's ectoplasm rather than physical movements of his body. And the final reason for the restraints is safety as sometimes 
his chair may levitate and float around the room and be dropped back down at the end of the seance. Can't have the poor guy tumble into his death before finishing the performance. Next question, why aren't these seances held in the light? Just as with developing film being destroyed by light, ectoplasm is highly sensitive to it. Has anyone ever seen the ectoplasm David produces? When the conditions are right for it, William, which is David's spirit conduit, will give the go-ahead that red light can be put on for a short period of time so that sitters may see the ectoplasm forming from David's mouth, coming out from under his gag. It forms into an undulating, sparkling, luminescent curtain down his stomach to his knees. The red light, unfortunately can only be used for a short period as it uses up a huge amount of energy and may restrict other phenomena from taking place. We're doing it for you, you know? Here's a good one. Why does the music have to be so loud during the seance? One would suspect it is to mask the sound of David getting out of his binds or assistants taking their places in order to pretend to be a spirit clomping around and touching attendees in the dark to further the illusion. No, you non-believers. According to David and his team, the energy of loud music is needed for physical phenomena to take place. And it also helps the medium more easily go into his trance state and not be distracted by the energy of the 40 or so people sitting in the audience. Luckily, the music is stopped at moments during the show so that you may clearly hear the voices and knocks and taps from the beyond. It's strange to me if the music is really that loud and David is bound and gagged how does the audio engineer know exactly when to turn the music down? It's almost as if they have cues or something. If you have had issue with the darkness factor taking place during ectoplasmic production and have had the exact thought that I did about why can't people just wear night vision goggles, silly, silly goose, they address this as well. You unfortunately can't, and for totally good and believable reason. They say, night vision cameras and goggles emit radiation, which has the potential to unsettle and destroy the balanced fabric of the vibration in the seance room. But the door is currently being left open should the cameras and equipment of the future be developed in such a way so as not to produce so much electromagnetic radiation that would disturb the image being captured or even injure the medium. I mean, tell that to thousands of paranormal investigators who capture stuff all of the time, but who am I to call BS? We'll do one more because it's the biggest red flag, but please go take a look if you get a chance at the rest of the questions on this site. Good, good stuff. All right, final one. Anyone sitting with David has to fill in a form in advance giving their name and address. Is this so his team can do research in advance about the sitters? Their answer? No, of course not. Dum-dums, David doesn't even see the forms at all. Duh. And the hosts of the event don't even give the forms a little, a little peeky-poo until after the seance concludes. God, you guys, sheesh. I mean, have a little faith. Trust the process. 
In all seriousness, I'm so surprised they took the time to detail out these kinds of questions as anyone with two brain cells to rub together can clearly see they are being lied to. You would think they would spin it uh, and him a little more positively, but I guess they're leaving it up to the reader and potential attendee to believe it or not. We didn't go through any of the actual red hand catching in today's episode. That has been well documented. Um, it's all squirm worthy and laughable, like like all of the testing of ectoplasm samples. You'll often hear non-believers quote cheesecloth. This is true, along with regurgitated newspaper and magazine clippings, egg whites, and and like just pieces of fabric, or the testing and scrutiny of the hand. <laughs> that would emerge from Mina Crandon's undercarriage being nothing more than sewn-together animal entrails, or researchers reaching out and touching the ectoplasm during the seance in the dark, and as soon as they reported this to the medium once the lights came back on, only then did the medium dramatically suddenly start to feel pain and shriek in horror before fainting. Or some... Sneakier investigators suddenly turning on a flashlight during the seance to find the medium themselves across the room shaking a table or touching someone's arm. It's embarrassing and uh, and a waste of people's time. This is the side of the paranormal that irks me. It would be one thing if you completely owned that this stuff was a mere performance. Sell it on the spooky factor. People will still go to your shows. But to continue to claim that it's real and that you are genuinely communicating with the dead using all of these clearly stupid precautionary reasons why no one is allowed to touch or even clearly see this stuff you claim to be able to produce, I I mean, be honest. At best, you could simply be an illusionist. But these people chose and choose to be dishonest and will forever only remain frauds, in my mind. As an article published by the Scientific American September 1922 so eloquently puts it, a logical and scientific mind is absolutely unable to imagine such a mass of conflicting data passing under the name of scientific evidence. Try to imagine a substance that dissolves in light, yet does not do so that can be analyzed and cannot be analyzed. But when analyzed, is found to consist of one assortment of elements and also of several other very different assortments that shrinks from all contacts but will throw tables and chairs around, that science knows nothing about, then promptly tells all about it. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle recently stated that scientists and psychic researchers were scandalously skeptical about ectoplasm. Need we echo anything about scandalous credulity? Now, though I am skeptical of this stuff, I am not one to tell others what to think. Continue to believe it is real if you wish. The paranormal is still a world built on opinions, subjective experience, and circumstantial evidence, for the most part. And we all are well aware of just how firmly people hold on to their beliefs, even in the face of truth and proof. But to close this subject and episode out for today, 
I want to leave you with one more quote from that same Scientific American article that I think is appropriate, both for this subject and for beliefs of the current day. And it's a good reminder to stay vigilant in your skeptical believership. That wriggling, worm-like, reptilian mess that caused Conan Doyle to shudder when he touched it is as disgusting in the manner of its production as it is doubtful in origin. Ectoplasm, the foundation of present-day spiritism, being fraudulent, one should see the superstructure fall of its own weight, but it will not. The spiritist loves his idol. Its feet may be of clay, but its head is ectoplasm, so do not shatter or dissolve it. The will to believe is what keeps the whole fraudulent business in vogue, not the evidence, for there is none that can withstand critical analysis. If you enjoyed my more skeptical take today or have enjoyed any of my musings over the course of this show, please leave a rating and review on your favorite listening platform. I hope you will join myself and hosts Alex and Steve on their live stream show, Nocturnal Frequency Radio, on September 11th, 6 p.m. Pacific, over on YouTube. They were so kind to invite me to come on and talk with them for their season 15 premiere, and I am super stoked. Uh, Come join us in the live chat. And if you heard about that show here, please jump on and shout that out. Would love, love, love to see some of my crew over there with us. Um, Hopefully by then my studio will finally be complete so I can show it off on the stream. It has been a long and arduous process with the whole truck driving for harvest thing, which is almost done, (laughs) almost, but uh, it's been taking up most of my time. So fitting in, installing drywall when I can. Still no luck with the astral travel. I'm not calling it quits yet, just keeping you abreast of the situation. The meditation though, is getting back to a regular relaxing thing, I gotta say, helping my mood, helping me feel one with the universe and whatnot. It's nice. I recommend. Um, I am still doing the gateway tapes just because I like what it feels like going through them. I know I said that I was gonna just do regular unguided stuff, but it's it's hard, you guys. It's so hard. My brain, man. I think that wraps up any announcery things I was gonna do. So all for today. Time for a final note. What else can I say about ectoplasm that hasn't been said before. My skepticism of it is really nothing new. Houdini, one of its most famous skeptics, has been made proud today, I am sure of it. However, there is an aspect of ectoplasm that I came across that did kinda make me look at it in another light. It's an interesting and I think an important point to make. Ectoplasm came on the scene at a time when women's bodies were still this unknown, unmapped territory in society, inscrutable. Even though right around the time this phenomenon emerged, so to speak, the gynecologic community was just making their first headway with explorations of the inner female landscape with devices like the speculum and procedures like the ovariotomy. It was still a mystery to most men, scientific community or no. Even Sigmund Freud in 1926 did not understand what he would call the dark continent of female sexuality. So 
it's unsurprising, especially with most physical mediums at that time being female, that ectoplasm was considered a real, palpable, but often gynecological externalization of the spiritual world. So real to some psychical researchers that it held a promise to revolutionize the scientific world. But it's thought that these women, and I would have to agree, who knew what they were doing, fully aware of their own fraudulence, were purposely taking control of the narrative, claiming a certain agency over their bodies and identities uncommon to most women at the time. At the height of the Victorian period, women conformed themselves and their bodies to the ideal, expected to just kneel to bourgeois societal repression and dangerously restrictive clothing. As we've seen in those initial examples I talked about today, in using some level of erotic influence and a, a female chaos to continue to direct this mystery in a way that they could control and couldn't quite be pinned down by their observers and critics, they were able to transgress the rigid sexual and social boundaries undoubtedly expected of women during that period. We see this also to some extent with the practice of witchcraft at different times in history. So these mediums would improve their material and financial situation under their own control. They could achieve a celebrity and elevated status, putting them shoulder to shoulder with the other stars of the time, the scientists, the spiritualists, and the psychical researchers. They would gain a level of respect and reverence reserved for men for something that men, first of all, did not understand, and second, for something they couldn't do themselves. Now, fraud within the paranormal world infuriates me to no end. I don't like the thought of people being duped and tricked. But being an empathetic female and champion of my fellow women, I do put myself in those women's shoes. I try to see the world as they saw it, the insurmountable obstacles, the lack of freedom and self-agency. And, and I just think, you know what? Screw it. <laughs> History has never been kind to women and that time period seriously sucked. You do what you gotta do, get it girl. And though they were only able to see how it affected them personally in their own lives, in their own times, Though a lot of these women would at one time or another see the inside of a jail cell. Though they were clearly fraudulent and introduced doubt in the mediumship world that is still evident today. Their ectoplasmic performances ultimately paved the way for the much subtler, convincing, and I would argue, altruistic form of mediumship that we see today. I believe that much like the Warrens opened the door and cleared a path for the modern-day paranormal investigator, so too did ectoplasm play its part for the psychic world. And this strange and bold upheaval of the norm threw skeptics and believers into a tizzy and leaves us with an interesting perspective today that not enough people think about and appreciate. The birth of the skeptical believer. The ability to not just buy the paranormal hook, line, and sinker, but to give credit and serious thought where it is due, but also objectively call a spade a spade. 
that's a bunch of food for thought. <laughs> that all was on my mind. Just wanted to share. That is going to wrap today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you all next week on another conversation episode, this time with medium and author of the book, Revelation, Nick Pease. He is an incredible human being, and his book is really good, you guys. Don't miss it. Until then, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.